Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access to episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast now you're doing there we've got a giggly podcast on our hands for a variety of reasons that cannot cannot go out in public <laughs> shocking behavior from Mr. Davis. Anyway, we are going <laughs> It's always to, my fault. It's always your fault. We are going today for a, as the Americans say, a deep dive. We're going to double click on it. We're going to, did they say that? Oh, shite and onions. Uh, shite and onions were the great expressions. That's from uh, Joyce again. Joyce Zafala. Yeah. Joyce Zafala. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Shite and onions. It's a great one. <laughs> or the good expression, fellas, of confused. Doesn't know if he wants a shite or a haircut. <laughs> I like that one, yeah. Anyway, how are you doing there? It's all good in the uh, in the basement. Just John refers to as the Orange Hall, which is not the Orange Hall. We are going to talk to a very interesting guy here in a minute who was born in Cork. So on that basis, we will claim him as Irish. Yeah. His name is Tim O'Reilly. I have come across... But he can't Tim. deny his Corkness, really. He can't <laughs> deny his Corkness. It's like everyone from Cork can't yeah. deny it. Do you know how you know a person's from Cork? He tells you. <laughs> anyway, that's just going out. We've just my, lost our cork. That's just going out from my Langer cousins. How are you? Anyway, Tim O'Reilly, born in Cork, went to the States as a young man, really on the cutting edge of thinking about initially computer science, then about the web, then about technology, all sorts of stuff. His book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Again, an amazing read. Going to be about the metaverse. What's your take of the metaverse, Johnny? Do you know? I I I don't know. You know, and I and I feel a little kind of uh, one of it, the most intelligent things that anyone could ever say. I don't know. Yeah, because that well, opens you up to knowing. There, there you go. But I was reading an article recently where I saw that last year transactions of virtual land. I hear on the the sandbox platform, which is one of the metaverse platforms. I don't really know how it works 
reached $350 million. And that's just one of the platforms. Okay. Like, like I, I, it's just beyond me. So what they're doing is they're buying virtually. You can't walk on it. You can't build on it. You can't, you know, hang out in the garden and have a little barbecue. and Can't have a few drinks in the kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. And also I saw that Snoop Dogg bought property on one of the sandbox things as well. But actually, I'm not even sure if he bought it. He might have even been given it. But somebody wanted to be his virtual neighbour and spent 450 grand buying the property next door to the, the Snoopverse. The Snoopverse. <laughs> well, I don't get it. John, the monopoly on gobshitery is something that is not exclusive to Americans. Yeah. But it is sort of mad that you would do this thing. But it's not new. I'm going to give you a story before we go to California. Go on. Have you ever heard of a fellow called whose parents are obviously very unimaginative, called Gregor McGregor. Gregor <laughs> McGregor? No. No, I haven't. Not to do with Conor McGregor. Maybe he is Conor yeah. McGregor. General Gregor McGregor. All right. You think virtual land is fascinating in terms of scams. Maybe the best scam that was ever pulled was Gregor McGregor was a Scottish soldier who was what they would call an adventurer mm. in the Napoleonic Wars around there in Latin America. Okay, in Argentina, Venezuela, Peru, all those places, which were full of prospectors, yeah. full of, we're going to change the world, can't believe how rich it is down here, etc. Gregor McGregor, this is all true, invented a country called Poyas. Right. And I swear to Jesus, right? Where was Just Poyas? Just south of Honduras. Okay. Okay. So you've got Costa Rica, Nicaragua, yeah. Panama, Honduras, and Poyas. Poyas. And he invented this place, right? And he drew up a constitution. He drew up the whole sort of thing, right? Right. Okay, it had an emblem, it had a flag, et cetera, et cetera. And he went to London and he floated the bonds of Poyas on the stock market. Right, and okay. And it never existed, okay, right? And he priced those bonds competitive to British consuls, which were the British way. Now, the British came up with a thing called the Consul to Fight the Napoleonic War. Right. which was a long-term debt. Yeah, which yeah. They basically said, look, if we lose to Napoleon, everyone in Britain will lose everything because Napoleon will invade, right? And he'll do the French revolutionary thing mm. and take all the money. Yeah. So basically the Brit British government said to the aristocrats, give us money. We'll give you IOUs. With that money, we'll fight Napoleon. Yeah. Right? This is how our friend Rothschild made all his money on his pigeons oh, flying yes, back yes, from yes, Waterloo. Yes, of course. Right? Yeah, yeah, so he, yeah. he, he specked in the consuls. So at the time, once the Brits won, there was a huge financial effervescence in the UK. They'd beaten Napoleon. Everything was going to be fine. The government was going to pay back the money. Lots of money flowed into the UK, right? That yeah. had actually left the UK because they feared, you know, our Martello Towers? Yes. Built around the same time. They yeah. feared that Napoleon would win and then Napoleon would do yeah. what the French Revolution did and kill all the aristocrats, right? Yeah. So there was a huge effervescence, like a bubble going on. And our friend Gregor McGregor, hey. with the unadventurous parents, into that, issued the bonds of a fabricated country and trousered all the money and, and fucked off. disappeared, did he? No, I think he got, he got caught in the end. But it's the same sort of carry on. Jesus. So these things do happen. So against the background of Gregor McGregor, who may well be related to Conor McGregor, who knows? Yeah, and Snoop Dogg. And Snoop Dogg. <laughs> There's a great combo, isn't it? Conor McGregor and Snoop Dogg. <laughs> 
<laughs> Imagine that fusion. Now, just think. I, I actually can. That's just think. One guy drinking proper 12 and the other with a massive spliff <laughs> yeah. in Walkenstown. And, and a bottle of Cristal, don't they? A bottle drink? of Cristal, yeah. yeah. In Drimnar or Walkenstown. There's an image in the back of your heads. Let's go to California and talk to Tim O'Reilly. Now, one of the most interesting newsletters knocking around at the intersection of technology and economics is written by a guy who was born in Cork many years ago, went to the States, Tim O'Reilly, went to the States when he was a kid, runs O'Reilly Media, a huge media concern out of California, newsletters on all sorts of issues. But the one that I think you'll be fascinated in is this idea of the new economy. Are we creating a new economy? What's the future of the economy? How tech and the economy change the way in which we're all going to live, going to do business, going to make a crust, going to hopefully make a crust, not lose a crust, all that good stuff. And Tim is on the line from California. Tim, how are you? I'm good. Uh, Let me just uh, make two small expansions of what you said. First off, uh, O'Reilly Media is largely a technology information and learning company. Newsletters are a very small part of what we do. The next economy newsletter that I publish weekly, it really grew out of my reflections on technology and the economy because technology is, in fact, changing and has always changed the fundamental nature of the economy. You know, you think, and, and also the na- nature of how people think about economics. You know, if you think about Adam Smith, he was coming to grips with new manufacturing technologies and how they changed the source of value in the economy from purely agriculture to manufacturing. Ricardo is talking about how trade is changing. Yeah, absolutely. And today, you know, people who are struggling with things like artificial intelligence or blockchain technologies are thinking a lot about economics. And of course, you look at something like open source software, which I've been very closely identified with over the years. You know, this is a whole new economy where people are doing things just for the love of it, not for money, and having a profound impact on an entire industry. There's something happening that we need to think about in the way, in the set of possibilities that technology is bringing to how we think about the way the whole economy works. Well, no, absolutely. And you're absolutely right to think that if we go back to the Egyptians, we go back to the Greeks, we go back to the Romans, and every iteration of thinking about economics comes coincident with or after a huge innovation in technology, in manufacturing know-how, in agricultural know-how, and all the way up, all the way up. And now we're talking about, and I want to get there, but before we get there, I want to you should take me through the journey to the metaverse, this thing that people are talking about, the third iteration of the internet. I'm speaking also to you as the guy who came up with the expression, the web 2.0. You know, 2.0 was the, the second coming of the web after the dot-com bust. You know, so yeah. it was like yeah. this thing blew up and out of the ashes, we said, well, there were certain things that survived. What were they and why did they survive? But everybody else read it as a version number, like it was just the new version of the web. So the book that we wrote was about the failure and then the looking at what survived and whatever we wrote was, oh, there was this new version number. And of course, so Web 3, which people are talking about now, is kind of like, well, that's the next version of the web. And ironically, I'm still there saying 
well, there's a bubble happening. We won't know what actually Web3 is until the bubble pops. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's talk about that because what, I, what I'm intrigued about is what is this Web3? Some people call it the metaverse, some people call it Web3. And the second thing is, what do you think is going on in Silicon Valley with all these crazy valuations and loads of money going in? The observation being about technology, I don't know who made it, but it's also that technology is usually overestimated in the short run and underestimated in the long run. So the impact of technology is overestimated in the short run. So everyone puts loads and loads of money and says it's going to change the world in the next 18 months. And that doesn't happen. But in the long run, its impact is underestimated. Yeah, because I, I think Bill Gates said that actually. Uh, okay, some 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 yeah. some geezer. I thought it was the bloke I met in the bus the other day, but there you go. <laughs> now tell us. So, what is this Web three stroke metaverse? What is it? So yeah, well let me let me start with Web three, which uh, is a term that was created by Gavin Wood, who was one of the founders of a cryptocurrency called Ethereum and a crypto platform. Uh, that was six or seven years ago. And it was really this idea of an infrastructure for a new web based on uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And there was a lot of political philosophy around it, but that was really the beginning of that uh, movement. And, 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 you know, that term has gained steam as crypto has taken off, uh, you know, with cryptocurrencies and NFTs and DAOs, which are distributed autonomous organizations, all these things that are enabled by blockchain. And there's a crazy, you know, financial bubble around all these technologies right now. And so that's really the heart of Web3. And then along comes Mark Zuckerberg and says, well, you know, we've been really focused on using on virtual reality as the next big thing. Yeah, and he goes, well, let, let's kind of conflate that with Web3, the best of both worlds, because, of course, part of what Web3 might offer is a business model for the, the so-called metaverse of you know, immersive virtual reality. You know, so the idea that, for example, you'd be buying in you know, virtual assets in these virtual worlds. Living in this, this sort of this world that you create, which is the best version of me living in the best version of a world no, that I've created. I, I, because that's what I it seems to me, that it seems to me to like, you know, that... So, for example, if you're if you're creating a parallel universe, which is fine, which is great, and you and you're a player and you're an active agent in this, you're creating something that I presume is slightly better than the world you live in. Maybe here's here's the thing that I find pretty dubious. First of all, I think that all of these technologies are, you know, there's some real progress in all of them. We're also in the the kind of the desperate stages of a financial you know bubble. Yes, I agree with where, you there. Where the valuations are so crazy high, and the substance of so many of the companies that are being valued at enormous numbers remind me very much of the period uh, right before the dot com bust. And I, I'd be very very surprised if there isn't a massive collapse in the tech industry. Around all these valuations and these com- many of these companies are just going to go out of business. Tim, can I stop you there because that's a that's a big statement because there'll be a lot of people who have bought into the idea that there's something transformative happening, that the huge valuations we're seeing will be made legitimate by subsequent events in the future, 
and you've got yeah. to get in there now. There's a main there's sort of a craze going. You can feel it. You can feel it if you if you, if you're on Twitter and you say something that's even skeptical of the metaverse or crypto or Bitcoin or what. Take your pick or Ethereum. You're, there's a big pile on of people, and the more people pile on, in my view, is like wow. The more people are suckered into this idea that the world is going right. to be beautiful. So the more kickback you get on Twitter, the more you should be worried. Explain to me what your thinking on the bubble is. Well. I guess the first thing I think about is that, you know, th there's two economies th that operate in parallel in today's world. And it's been true for a long time, really, since the first sort of futurist markets were invented in Holland in the you know, early you know, 1730s, right? And, th and that yeah. led to the, the famous tulip bubble, right? And this is the idea that you can bet on the future value of something. And that's taken over more and more of our sort of financial markets. 20 years ago, you know, a company like Goldman Sachs was a conduit of capital to the operating economy where people needed capital and they would say, hey, can you help us raise the money? And at some point, companies like Goldman Sachs said, no, no, we're actually going to start, you know, trading for ourselves, you know, yeah. just embedding and, and, and manipulating. And, and, you know, so it's, it's deep, deep in the financial system. And there's actually a great uh, post by Matt Stoller, you know, who says, yeah, Web3 is a scam, but compared to what? You know, yeah, exactly. You know, there's all this sort of self-dealing and all these shady characters. And you go, that's the regular financial system, too. It's just a different set of shady characters, yeah. you know. So anyway, so there's this betting economy and it's really gone off the rails. Yeah. You know, yeah. ideally, and first off, and there's an economist, Carlotta Perez, who you may, may know, who studies yes. the relation between technological revolutions and, and financial bubbles. And she knows every major technology revolution, you know, has had a bubble associated with it. It was a railroad bubble. You know, there was a uh, steel bubble. It was an automobile bubble. Yeah, wh whatever. You, you, you pick it. Yep. Uh, it was a canal bubble. Well, you know, it was funny. I was about to say, like, at the back, at the front of this house now is a railway that was originally built from Dunleary to the city of Dublin uh, yeah. in 1840, 1838, the first suburban railway. And by 1850, Irish investors were piling into railways everywhere. The same yeah. people would have had a historical memory of the canal mania only 40 years earlier, which yeah. is exactly the same thing. But we are left with a railway out here we still use and a canal that people sit and drink beside and, and hang out on. That, and that's exactly Carlotta's point, that a productive bubble is one that leaves behind really useful stuff, you know, and I can think of no better example of that today than the valuation of Tesla, right? You know, if you think about a stock, you know, in some sense is a, is a claim on a company's earnings and that, you know, there's this fundamental measure, you know, yeah. like the price yeah. earnings ratio. some re relationship between profit and valuation. That, that's right. And so you kind of go, well, what's it worth to, in theory to own Tesla, well, it's, it's, a, it's a claim on a share of its earnings. The reality is there's also this betting economy and people are just going, well, how much is it going to be worth in future? You know, and they don't care what the earnings are. All they care is like, is some other sucker going to pay more? It was interesting when Elon first became the richest man in the world, it would have taken 1,500 years for Tesla's earnings to pay back the price you were paying. No way. 1,500 years. Now it's down only to 600 years, right? You know, but 
Elon has taken those incredible bubble valuations and he's building real stuff. He's transforming the auto industry. You know, everybody's now chasing his taillights and building electric cars. He's built battery factories. He's driven the, the electric, you know, store, battery storage industry. You know, he's loaded on rooftop solar. He's building the, the, the energy infrastructure of the future and this massive change. And even if the price of Tesla stock collapses, the value that will have been created is much like the, that railroad or those canals that you talk about. So then you apply that thinking to Web3 and the metaverse, and I'm not sure I can really make that case yet. Interesting. You know, like when, when somebody pays, you know, $60 million for a, a digital object that's really like a trading card. Is that really a new source of deep value in the economy? No, it's it's a it's a tulip. It is a tulip, but maybe even less than a tulip because at least with a tulip, you know, there was the new science of plant breeding. You know, that, well, that that's actually yeah, source of real value. And uh, but 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 I, I, again, there's something there. And here's what I think. You know, the the crypto market is pretty broad, and there's something like you know Bitcoin, which really kicked the the whole thing off, which is kind of this odd kind of commodity that's valuable only for its scarcity. It's, it's maybe a kind of digital gold and it might stick around, but that's, you know, like it's, it's artificially limited and, you know, be, could become a, a, a long-standing speculative asset class. Ethereum, uh, which is the other leading cryptocurrency, is a platform for building applications. And so that, that's actually much more interesting long-term in terms of turning into something lasting. The, then there's all these sort of effectively meme coins, you know, that are just like things that are being manipulated. You know, Elon Musk says, oh, yeah, Doge is I'm going to buy into Doge and everybody piles in and it becomes valuable for a while and then it collapses. And that's all the betting economy. You know, so Ethereum has the, the biggest chance of building something lasting out of these bubble valuations. Actually, Tim, explain to me, why is that? Because they are trying to build something real. Right. That, that actually, you know, they're trying to say, hey, we could do things that the financial industry does, but in a new way. And if, in fact, you're able to transform the financial industry, again, there's a, there's a whole utopian set of ideals around, well, well, this will be much more democratic and it won't be centralized and owned. And I don't buy any of that because, uh, you know, people will figure out a way to get control of it. And it's already very centralized, despite the rhetoric. But if you build new pathways for money to flow through, that can be really a powerful change. You know, if you look at, at you know who controls the flow of money in the economy, they really control a lot of value, which is why I think some of the big existing banks are are really scared about this. You know, you look at this and you think about a company like Goldman or Morgan Stanley or you know whoever it might be, they are this unique reservoir of trust that allows them to become an intermediary in all these transactions. And, you know, what blockchain does, it offers a technological model of trust, which allows a new set of intermediaries to step in. But that, that's a real opportunity and, and where there is real substance here. Okay, now let's get to virtual reality. I think virtual reality will be part of our future. I think augmented reality will be part of our future. But we're very, very in the very, very clunky stage. I mean, 
nobody's going to spend that much time with a big clunky headset on their head. You know, I'm sorry. It's not a great look. It's well, it's it's not a great experience, but again, there's something that's there. It's going to, but it's like, it's probably 10 years out. And meanwhile, Facebook has a, has its stock to prop up. So they go, well, we're all going to be part of this big metaverse and it's a marketing story. So let's, let's summarize the Tim O'Reilly view of what's happening to valuations now the technological legacy of some of the things that we're seeing on the back of this observation that the technological legacy of the canals or the railroads or even Tesla is significant and evident. And maybe the progression of the next like 12 or 24 months, months in, this, in, the, in this space, this new economy space. Well, I, I think the most profound advances are actually still happening in AI, not in blockchain slash web three or in virtual reality slash the metaverse. AI is really becoming ubiquitous in fairly profound ways. You know, it's getting into consumer devices. You know, the nature of programming is changing. Uh, We have these large models, you know, what they call foundation models sometimes, but, you know, large language models that are getting better and better and incorporate massive amounts of knowledge Explain this to me. What, to what end? Well, let me give you a, a very concrete example from the O'Reilly online learning platform. Yeah. We have probably hundreds of thousands of ebooks, tens of thousands of hours of video, live online training, all this technology. This is a big search problem, right? We were using an old school search engine called Solar, open source. And it's a little bit like playing whack-a-mole. You, you know, you're trying to search something and it doesn't give you the right results. And so you tweak the parameters and then you get, you fix the problem that you started out with, but then you've got a new problem somewhere else. And then we just recently switched to working with a company called Miso, which has built a machine learning based search technology that's based on something Google built called BERT. It was one of the first of the large language models. And in some sense, BERT encapsulated everything Google knew about the content of the web. It was it basically, it's, if you have to understand how AI models, they're trained on lots and lots of data. You feed them lots and lots of data and they, it draws kind of a picture of the world from it, just like we do. You know, we, we look around and we go, yeah. oh, I'm in this room. And, you know, it draws a picture of the world. And these words go with that. You know, Bert was really the beginning of this idea of really language understanding at a different level in the model. So Google releases BERT as open source, and these guys kind of take it and they basically train it further on our content. And suddenly, we have a search engine that's better than Google for our content. Wow. You know, and you can ask plain language questions and just bang, you go right to the page in the book or the frame in the video. And... It's because there's so much understanding that got encapsulated in this model. And and I don't think people have realized yet how utterly transformative these models are going to be to the ability of every company to use the kind of technology that was formerly only at the really uh, giant companies. I think it's destabilizing in the same way to the industry power structures in the same way that the personal computer was to IBM, in the same way that the internet and open source software or Microsoft, I think this is 
for all Google created some of these models, I think it's going to be destabilizing to the industry structure that they dominate in a way that they don't yet understand. And I think that's actually the biggest thing that's happening in technology. That's my personal belief. Are you familiar with David Graeber's concept of bullshit jobs? Yes. David Graeber, one of the great anthropologists, wrote a fantastic book called Death, The First 5,000 Years and many other things. A fantastic, fantastic anthropologist. Yeah, but the, the idea of bullshit jobs is that a huge part of the current economy, you know, first of all, we have this economic notion that free markets and capitalism are really actually about economic efficiency. And he, he kind of really questions that. He said, look, no, actually a huge amount of what goes on in the current economy is just keeping people busy with make work. You know, we do, you know, we do in fact have technologies that could do a lot more than, than we do. And so those are bullshit jobs. You know, it's like you think about interacting with so many systems. It's like the system is bad. It could be better. And we don't make it better because we put people out of work. And yes, there's a lot where we are putting people out of work. But the real question is, at what point, for me, do we let these technologies put people out of work, pay them the same amount of money, and just let them work less? That's what John Maynard Keynes wrote about in 1929 in Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. You know, it was like, dude, we have this amazing technology of productivity and we're frittering it away. And, and that kind of brings me back around to, in some sense, NFTs. I, I started writing a piece, which I haven't published yet, and it's called Andy Warhol, Clayton Christensen, and Vitalik Buterin, who was the founder of Ethereum, walk into a bar. And it's really about this notion that as one thing becomes a commodity, something adjacent becomes valuable. And, th and that, that, that was something that helped explain for me, you know, how as the PC commoditized uh, computer hardware, Microsoft found the adjacent possibility of-, yeah. of No, I, I, I get you. But I've also thought about that a lot over the years. And I thought about it more generally, you know, think about coffee. Coffee, when I was growing up, you bought in a five pound can, it was a commodity, kind of like sugar. Yep. Right. And now the coffee business is all specialty. The, you know, these are Ethiopian beans and, you know, different roasts. And, you know, we basically mixed in ideas about what makes something special. And so now, you know, I think something like 55% of all coffee sold is specialty coffee. And, you know, you think about organic food or locally grown. These are ideas that allow you to charge a premium. And in some sense, what NFTs are is this idea of people paying for things, for ideas, just because they're cool and different. You know, and it's, it's in some sense, it's the purest instantiation of that idea that we, we increasingly we have this money sloshing around and we don't know what to do with it. So we basically, the, this whole betting economy in some sense, is an expression of, of the abundance in rich society. Now, my take on that, which I cover a lot in my book, WTF, uh, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, is we have some choices to make because we can use this, abund this abundance to create bullshit jobs, to create a betting economy that makes some people rich and just skate by a lot of the world's problems, or we can actually find ways to do the work 
You know, and, and there's a lot of people in tech who are thinking about this. You know, Kai Fu Lee, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called AI Superpowers, you know, sort of wargaming the AI race between the US and China, you know, has this idea that he called uh, a you know, social investment stipend, you know, like, you know, and then there's things like universal basic income. But yeah. No, I mean, these are, these are, these are like, you know, when you, when we started there, you were talking about Keynes and, and, and Keynes really came to the view in the late 20s and early 30s that with technology, we will be able to liberate humans from the drudgery of day-to-day Greybarian bullshit jobs. And then the question is, why haven't we done it? And there's one idea, which is the Obama idea where the politicians are saying, well, look, man, you know, we've got five or six million people doing these jobs, so let's leave it as it yeah. is. And then the other idea is, well, why not just give them the universal base of income and let them go off fishing for the day or let them go and hang out for the day? Exactly. And and I think that there's more momentum around that. I, I don't think, I don't know that I believe that universal basic income is necessarily the right direction, although we have, we have parts of it. I, I think there's a lot more, for me, one of the big things we need to do is to bring what you might call the caring economy inside the value boundary. And that's where I like Kaifu Lee's social investment stipend. You go, hey, we're going to give you money to take care of your aging parents. We're going to give you money to go clean up your neighborhood. You know, we could be paying for things that need doing. You know, we could have a civilian conservation corps for climate change. So I think we need a mix, you know, of, of rather than just leisure. But I want to give you, actually, because we, we're talking about Keynes, there's a great quote, in, which I'm trying to figure out if I can use in this article I'm writing from that economic possibilities for our grandchildren. He says, to judge from the behavior and the achievements of the wealthy classes today in any quarter of the world, the outlook is very depressing. God, this is 1929. <laughs> These are to speak our advanced guard. Those who are spying out the promised land for the rest of us, that is the promised land of abundance and pitching their camp there. But most of them fail disastrously, so it seems to me. Those who have an independent income, but no associations or duties or ties to solve the problem which has been set them. You know, in this essay, he's talking about the, our true economic problem is how to make use of abundance, not how to, you know, to, to survive scarcity. But then he goes, I feel sure that with a little more experience, we shall use the newfound bounty of nature quite differently from the way in which the rich use it today. And we'll map out for ourselves a plan of life quite otherwise than theirs. And I think that's the choice that we have before us. You know, do we go forward into a world in which we solve the problems that are all around us and make prosperity for everyone? And I like to think in a lot of ways, you know, being rich, we should all be richer improving the lot of everyone should be the goal of every economic policy. And there can be debates about what's the best way to do that, but we definitely need to keep moving on that trajectory. We have massive problems, climate change, you know, and you know, new diseases like you know, COVID that need dealing with. But we also have this job of so much can be produced for us today. And do we continue to build an economy that is, you know, wasteful, or do we basically say, no, give some of this back to people as a dividend? You know, working hours went from 70 to, you know, 35 or 40, and then that just stopped. You know, Keynes thought in 1929 that we'd be- Let's keep going. Let's keep going. 
Let's keep going. Why are we paying people to go do bullshit jobs when we could just say, no, actually, you know, we'll pay you. This is how much we need you. And I guess one of the lines that I use in my book, there's plenty to go around. It's just not going around. Exactly. That brings me back to Web3 and the vision that so many of its, you know, enthusiasts have is that it is a way of democratizing, you know, wealth. I don't think the reality lives up to it. It feels much more like a pyramid scheme, but I love the idealism of it. And I think there are people who are working to make it true and they'll make some progress. And, and that's one of my, my touchstone quotes is from a poem from Rilke called The Man Watching. Uh, it's about Jacob wrestling with the angel and how they wrestled with angels in the Old Testament. And they didn't think they could win, but you know it made them stronger. And he, he ends with this wonderful thing. He said, what we, what we fight with is so small. And when we win, it makes us small. What we want is to be defeated decisively by successively greater beings. On that note, I think, Tim, we will leave it there. Fascinating way. I didn't think we could, I didn't think we were going to end with wrestling with angels, but uh, that's the beauty of wisdom. It is actually evergreen. <laughs> and, and a lot of things don't make us smarter, even when we think, Tim, thank you so much for that. That was excellent stuff. And around the houses, great stuff. And we'll talk to you soon. All right, great. Thanks a lot, Mac. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm a little bit more enlightened now about the metaverse, but I'm... Still not convinced. But what I do like... and, and There the, is a light bulb going on in the basement. <laughs> it's flickering at the moment. It's flickering. It's, it's flickering. a bit weak. It's, just, it's kind of a yellow looking light bulb. You can, you can see... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one of the key points I did take from him was... Like all the, these bubbles, you know, whether it's the tulips or whether it's the railways out here or whether it's the dot-com bubble or whatever, these bubbles happen. It's like a pattern. These bubbles yep. happen all the time and they burst and that's okay. But it's the good stuff that remains that continues on. And that's, you know, 
and maybe Web point three is, is the metaverse is going to be the same. It's you know th- this whole thing about buying lots of virtual property just is crazy. But maybe we need to go through all that for the whole thing. The burst that will come out at the end of the day. I don't know what it will be, but the metaverse will become in some way useful to us. Well, certainly trading platforms. And we go back to you know fintech. Yeah. Right. This could well create alternatives to money and to finance, to banking, yeah. which are have some inefficiencies, not a huge amount, but some, and they could definitely be changed. But the thing about the bubble is that it is part of economic history, and it's also part of commerce, not least because it gets to the crux of money, that money is just us. Yeah. And humans are excitable animals and unbelievably influenced by price. Economists say price is where supply and demand meet. Mm. So if you learn economics, yes, yeah. someone says it's the price is that right, the two lines, yeah. It's much fucking more than that. Price gives people the horn. Right? <laughs> okay? Okay. Basically, when you see a price going up, people get the horn and they do mad things. So just remember that a rising price gives you the horn. Now, while I have you, it's the summer. You've got a choice. You could sit in your Swiss, hang out, do nothing, have a few pints, take it handy. Or you can use the summer to learn economics with me on Patreon. We have two courses, the courses that I give in Trinity, macroeconomic courses, cycles, booms, busts, history, the history of money, all sorts of good stuff, right? We've got the notes, we've got the reading list, we've got everything. We'll take you through it. A very fine way. If you're going after a stroll, just put the headphones in and listen and learn economics with me. That's economics with me, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.